All right, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis 38. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. One of our men will bring one to you. And if you have one of the Bibles that belong to the church, then it's on page uh, 41. And we're out of James now in the youth ministry, which means that I'm not going to be preaching from James this morning. But we are finishing our series through Genesis, story by story, chapter by chapter, and we're not skipping over anything. And as of right now, in the youth ministry, we're in Genesis 42, but we're going to be preaching on or studying Genesis 38. That was from a few weeks ago in the youth ministry. And the story is a pretty memorable one. And if uh, the students could handle it, then I'm sure you guys can too. Uh, there's a lot of fun stuff in what we're about to read in this story. If you ever made a mistake that was so big that you never wanted to make that mistake again, then you can relate to who we're going to study this morning. Or maybe you have, if you have made a mistake and, and you've made the same mistake over and over again, and it's your desire to stop making that mistake, you can relate to this guy here. But uh, before we get into the story, let's uh, open it up in prayer. Pray for God's blessing over this time of study. Father, we, we are constantly sinning every day, and a day goes by that we, we constantly rely on, on your mercy and your grace to sustain us. That when we make mistakes, our faith is not that we'll never make a mistake again, but our, our faith is in that we are forgiven of all our sins and you cleanse us of all unrighteousness and that you're faithful in doing so. So for all of us here in this room who have made mistakes, ones that maybe we've made a mistake with so big in our lives that we never made it again, and there are some mistakes that we continually to struggle with, sin issues in our lives that we are, we are pleading for your help. We pray for your grace upon us so that you would Give us a special grace this morning in, in giving us wisdom on how to deal with those issues, how to deal with uh, whether it's a constant sin issue or whether it's dealing with shame and guilt that we shouldn't be dealing with anymore, that we should be able to leave behind knowing that all things are forgiven in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we just pray for your help this morning and having a better understanding of those things and how it relates to whom we're going to read about this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so in Genesis 38, we're going to we'll break it up into scenes, but uh, 38, chapter, uh, chapter 38, verse 1 to 11, we'll call scene 1. Let's just start reading together. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurrah, and Judah saw that there was a, a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her, and so she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And then she bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kezib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, the secondborn, Go into your brother's wife and, and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he did go into his brother's wife, he wasted a seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, I'm afraid that I might lose uh, 
him as well, that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So here in this first scene, we have this scene set up about Judah's life. And, and a quick recap is when it says in first one, it came about at that time. Well, what, what was that time? That time was a chapter that just happened. Was Judah? It was Judah's idea, and with all his brothers, it was his idea to sell off Joseph to the slave traders. And that's how Joseph ends up in Egypt. And so at about that time, not long after, now it's Judah's turn. He's, he's now departing from his family, starting his family. He found a wife, and he's got three sons now. And so about that time, and we're going to see uh, this, this strange uh, uh, contrast between how Judah's life is going and how Joseph's life is about to start going. Uh, when Judah did everything, and his brothers, they did everything they could to ruin Joseph's life so that they could be successful. And we're going to see how Judah's life turns out. So right away, we see this, uh, what's called a leveret marriage. A leveret marriage is when, uh, is of that culture at that time, we see it in Scripture in God's law, but it also existed already within the ancient Near East culture. And so a leveret marriage was essentially what's in Deuteronomy 25, 5-7, when it says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man, Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, which is to give her children. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So in the ancient Near East culture, they already had this understanding of the importance of of another brother's responsibility if the older brother dies without having children, then it's the next brother in line, his responsibility to have children with the same wife or the same woman and take, uh, take her as their next wife. So we see right away that for some reason, Er was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so he got killed. He was smited by the Lord. And then Judah, or then Onan knew the responsibilities given to him, but he refused to have children knowing that they, they wouldn't be his. We don't know all of the motivations of why he would want to do it, but we do know that if he were to have children with Tamar, it would mean that there would be less inheritance for Onan to inherit. And so for him, financially, it was better for him to not have kids with her because if anything were to happen, uh, then he would inherit more from his father Judah than if he were to have children for his older brother. So there is some reasons why, uh, very practical reasons why Onan would not want to have kids with her. So the Lord smited him as well. And so it's no surprise that Judah wants to protect his youngest son. He's seeing this trend in his older two and says, okay, how do I put a stop to my son's being killed? I know he can't marry this woman. So he sends her off with no intention, as we're going to see, he has no intention of giving Shalah to Tamar as a husband. He's simply lying to her to get her out of the picture and protect his son. And so it's an interesting as a third, I'm the youngest of three boys, and I, I am constantly seeing this trend through the Old Testament how the youngest brother is always a spoiled one, right? The, the younger brother, the older shall serve the younger. We've seen that several times already in Genesis. Uh, we, we've seen that, and now we see that uh, Judah is protecting the youngest son, but he has no intention, and Tamar, Tamar doesn't know this yet. As we see from the, from the law of God, that she was not allowed to go outside that relationship to marry someone else unless Judah were to give her a release from that, and then she would be able to find a husband. And remembering that in that culture, a woman needed a man to be her provider because he was the one that 
He was the one that had the trade. He was the one that worked. And, and women had very little to no rights. They, they were barely, in terms of rights, they were barely above animals and children. And so for a woman to be without a husband uh, and without a provider was a big deal. And for her to not have children was a, a, a source of shame for most women in that culture. And, and so she, wa- she had this godly desire to have children. So that's scene one. Judah's lied to her, has no intention of giving her, uh, as Shalad, uh, giving her his third son, Shalad, to Tamar as a husband. Let's see what happens next. Scene two. Uh, as a reminder, uh, there's a map of where this is all taking place. Just, I, I, like, I love the reminder that all these things are happening in places that still exist today. You know, as Christians, we can, never, we can never take this too lightly. That in, in other religions, there are, there are people groups and locations that are never found or never heard of before. But in the Christian faith, there is so much archaeological evidence. There is so much uh, that we could fall back on in terms of uh, reassurances and, and, and confidence to place our faith in. Uh, and as, as a reminder that these stories are not stories that we would read uh, as just fairy tales to our children. That these are events that happen to real people in real places in real time. So right now, Tamar is in a holding pattern. She's just waiting for Shelah to get older and of age, and she could have children. She could take him as her new husband, and she could fulfill her responsibility as a mom and as a wife to have children. Let's read verse 12 now. Scene 2, we're going to read through verse 23. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died, and who... And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, and he and, he and his friend Harah the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself in, and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot for she had covered her face. So he turned aside her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, Well, what pledge shall I give you? And she said to him, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and went into her and conceived by, and she conceived by him. And she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, this is a good friend, we'll see, to receive the pledge from one's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, where is the temple prostitute by, who was by the road at Enaim? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the men of that place said, there's never been a temple prostitute there. Then Judah said to, <laughs> to Hurrah, okay, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. All right, so what's happening now? Well, Judah's wife dies. He mourns for her death, and now as a single man once again, he's on his way to work, essentially, go uh, check on the sheep shears, and he finds a prostitute on the side of the road, 
and he falls into temptation and has sex with a prostitute, not knowing that it is his daughter-in-law, which we'll see later on in God's law. That was one of the ancestral relationships that is outlawed. So, um, once again, we could see God's law reflected already by what was in place in the ancient Irish culture. So, she gets pregnant. Judah doesn't know this yet. And he gives her his seal and his cord and his staff. Essentially, items that have his name written all over it. Okay? I suppose a, a modern example might be of somewhere to commit uh, a, a similar act today, maybe it would be the similar as leaving their credit card there, you know, or leaving their driver's license there uh, as a pledge and, and not realizing what they had just done. They just in, uh, possibly incriminated themselves. So Judah sends his friend, this is a good friend, to deliver it for him. Why? Because Judah, knowing that as an Israelite, as a, a son of Israel, it was not right of him to... Uh, to have sex with a temple prostitute or any prostitute. And so in his right mind, well, I'm going to send the local to go for me because that's less embarrassing. I'm going to send in my friend Hurrah because he's from that area. Is not, you know, People won't think much of it, but for me, as a, a son of Israel, son of Jacob, as we were told a, a few chapters ago, when, when, we, when, all the sons of, when Simeon and Levi slaughtered all the, all the people of Shechem, uh, Jacob told all his sons, leave your foreign gods behind. So Judah knows what it means to worship what he thought was a temple prostitute, to involve other worship practices in what he uh, into his own life. And so to his own shame, he sent his friend to go down with him, uh, to go down for him, to, to make the payment for him, bring back my seal, my cord, and my staff. Uh, the seal was literally probably ring-sized. It's something uh, that you would roll onto something. You could make an imprint of something or roll it in ink or in wax, and you could make an imprint. And the cord is just simply what uh, the chain or the, or the, the cord that, it would, that a lot of these uh, seals would hang on. And, and the staff is just uh, uh, many times a mark of authority. And so that's why it, some, so, some form of his name or some, some, some form of uh, uh, inscription on there designating that to Judah would be on there because a staff is a, is a symbol of his authority. So he gave all this as a, as a pledge, hoping that he would get it back. And now he's saying, well, let's just let her keep all those things because I don't want to be, it's embarrassing if, to be considered outwitted by a prostitute, by a temple prostitute. And what's worse is that when, they, when Hurrah went in there, uh, he used the term temple prostitute, which was, uh, could be considered the, uh, uh, likened to the term holy woman, you know, as if it makes it that much better. And so the idea, there's prostitutes and then there's temple prostitutes. And temple prostitutes were considered a little more holy than a normal prostitute because then at least it's an act of worship. And we see this in the church of Corinth and, and throughout the New Testament letters. This is something that they're still dealing with. Christians incorporating uh, temple prostitutes in their Christian worship. It probably didn't take long for someone to have this idea, hey, you know what would make worship better is if we had temple prostitutes. And so for Judah, he knew that he could not go down there and show his face. And so for him, it's better to just leave that stuff with this woman, thinking that he's never going to see her again. So let's see what happens next. Verse 24 to 30. Now it was about three months later, or a.k.a. 12 weeks later, if you're pregnant, right? 
that Judah wasn't formed. So 12 weeks, first trimester, probably the least fun, right? Uh, out of the three. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is with child by her harlotries. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I'm with child by the man whom these things belong to. She pulls out the, so- the cord, the seal, and the staff. And she said, please examine these and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, they're not mine. No, that's not what he said. He said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch I did not give her to my son Shalah, and he did not have relations with her again. It came about at that time when she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place that while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took the tied scar and took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand, and behold, his brother came out first. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. And so he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out. <laughs> we have a Perez in our congregation. Afterward, his brother came out who had a scarlet thread, and on his hand, his name was Zerah. So now, three months later, everyone finds out Tamar is pregnant because she's probably not hiding it very well. And uh, later, that, uh, later, Judah was informed. What was his response? Well, his response is so harsh because to him, it seems as if Tamar has committed adultery towards his family and his sons by going outside of their marital agreement and has found a new husband or found another man outside of their family and become pregnant by him. So now he's trying to condemn her for going outside their family when he never released her from that marital covenant. When she was supposed to be in a holding pattern waiting for Shalah, when we, as we know that Judah had no intention of giving him to her. So now he's upset that Tamar sinned against his family. And then, of course, Tamar had the perfect play. She presented all these things that belonged to Judah, and he couldn't deny it. And we see a better side of Judah in this. The immediate confession. The fact that he he didn't even deny it at all, that he could have, as a man in that culture, probably could have convinced the, the, uh, the city and all those watching that she was lying for some reason. Maybe she stole them from him. Uh, she could, he could have easily probably uh, convinced everyone that she was still at fault. He had that authority as a man. He probably could have done that. But we see him confessing right away. And so we see this better side of Judah. That as we've seen in the last several years now, we've seen plenty of cases of sexual harassment and sexual abuse, all, all these kinds of allegations. I wonder how many of them have confessed to it right away. Without going through these appeals, without going through these court processes, without going through all the social media and all these interviews, how many, for those whom are guilty, how many of them confessed their sin right away when they were found out? I don't think many, if at all. Judah shows a lot of nobility in, in his character. that he didn't, he didn't even try to deny what he had done. 
we see that Tamar has twins now. Perez, we see later on, he's going to become the great, 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 great grandfather of King David. So it's amazing throughout Scripture how we see God redeem, not just in this instance, but already through Genesis, we've seen God, uh, God's story uh, played out and how he redeems people from their sinfulness. That doesn't matter the circumstances that anyone is born into. It's God and God alone that causes someone to succeed and fail. He, he, God draws us to him, regardless of the situation we're born in. So an interesting observation, I mentioned the, the contrast between Judah and Joseph's life. And one of the interesting uh, contrasts is we see Judah's life now in shambles, when as the oppressor to his brother, they thought they, they were setting themselves up for success. They got the tattletale out of the way. They got the, the dreamer out of their lives, or, or the one who was constantly uh, telling them they, will be, they were going to be bowing down to him. Well, they probably thought that they showed him when they got rid of him. And so their brothers are probably thinking this in this way that they are set up for success now because they got Joseph out of the way. And now we see jo- Judah's life in shambles. And then in the next few chapters, we're going to see that, that Joseph's life is succeeding regardless of what his brothers did to him. That they did everything in their power to ruin Joseph's life, but yet God had different plans for Joseph. Uh, there's an interesting painting I found. Uh, it, this is at the um, uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And it's painting by uh, Ferdinand Boll in 1644. And it's got an interesting picture where uh, in the description of the painting it says, the heightened psychological state of the figures is conveyed by contrasting the anxious lust of Judah with the cool determination of Tamar. I thought that was a very appropriate description of his rendition of this, of this story. The anxious lust of Judah with the cool determination of Tamar. Tamar had a plan. She was she executed it, and it worked. And she, she did it uh, well enough to it worked out exactly how she hoped it would. She now has children. She now has a provider. She has a husband to take care of her. She doesn't have a concern for her future anymore. So what do we learn? What are we to learn from this episode? The beautiful thing about Old Testament narratives is that there is so much that we could pull away. Uh, you could pull away principles and truths about who God is and, and, and doctrine and theology. Uh, you pull all these different things away that uh, someone could preach any Old Testament text and come away with something else to learn from it. Not that they're changing, without changing any interpretation, without changing the story at all. There, there are more than one, uh, there's more than one thing to pull away from these Old Testament stories. So, one of the things we're to learn from this episode from Judah's life is well, you don't write your name in wet concrete and expect to get away, from, away with it, right? No. I think it's easy to look at stories like this and just make fun of how foolish Judah was for giving him, giving the prostitute items that had his name written all over it, and we could easily say things, well, that was his fault, or he shouldn't have been so stupid. But there are much deeper things that we can learn from this. I think the first one is recognizing temptation. That Judah was now in a place of singleness. And this has got to be a difficult, difficult place to be in for anyone who's lost a spouse. But to be in, now you were once in a relationship where, where the sex was not sinful, 
and the sex was reflecting uh, the relationship that we have with God. And the sex is, it, it's, it, it's okay in that relationship. You're not doing anything wrong. And to now be single again, and now for all those things that you once enjoyed in the marriage relationship, you can no longer enjoy as a single person. So Judah going up to work to check on the sheep shears and, and going up to Timnah, he was tempted sexually. As Christians, I think we many times fail to recognize temptation, that we, fall in, we can fall into sin so many times and so fast and so quickly and so ignorantly that we completely miss the temptation that preceded it. That we, we jump to losing our anger or we, we jump to uh, things that we've looked at on the internet or on TV or the things that we watch. We completely uh, jump into sin sometimes, completely missing the temptation that we were supposed to avoid in the first place. We see a couple times in, in uh, uh, temptations that Judah missed was the fact that he lied to, just to keep his son alive. Or, or falling into temptation and sexual temptation having sex with a prostitute. So I think many times we fall into temptation and sin so fast. It's like when you drive, you're, you're driving on the highway and you don't even realize how fast you're driving. You're driving so fast you miss the speed limit sign. And, and when you look down, you're, you're surprised. I didn't realize I was going that fast. And sinning could often be the same way. If we don't know the word of God well enough, or, or if we're not aware of the temptations that are in our lives, we will fall into sin so fast that we completely miss the temptation that, that was there to warn us in the first place. I think there's different examples we could look at. You know, when we fall into sin and, and dating or relationship mistakes or be, just being around the wrong influences, we, we can miss all kinds of red flags and signals uh, from the Word of God in terms of not being uh, unequally yoked or, or knowing the kinds of people that we should be trusting and, or being around people who, who are like-minded in, in Christ and surrounding yourself with those people uh, to have an influence on you. We can miss all kinds of temptations, all kinds of red flags on the way in, in terms of relationships that we're in or if we're dating or in marriage. If we don't know the word of God, we're going to miss all kinds of temptations that will help steer us away from falling into sin. Addictions, which is really just another form of idolatry. We could quickly become addicted to things that we don't even know that we're addicted to. Right? Isn't, isn't the first step to recognize and so many people will even miss the fact that they're addicted to something it doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol it could be food it could be our, our, our tablets or phones we could be addicted to anything any created thing where we place our hope and happiness in the created rather than the creator so if we don't know what idolatry is then how can we be aware of the temptations of idolatry being desensitized to what we watch. I feel like uh, there's a good chance that I would, I would pose the notion that many of us are falling into uh, sexual sin and, and adultery in our hearts just because we're so desensitized to what we see on TV now. That we're used to seeing people in bed together. We're used to seeing certain kinds of language used on, on television or in movies. We're used to all these things, and it's had a certain effect on us to where we are now desensitized uh, to it, and, and we, are fall, we very well are falling into sin, likely, when we don't even realize we're being tempted sexually because we're used to it. Angry outbursts. If you have an issue with anger, 
chances are you've jumped to your anger so quickly that you completely missed the temptation that was there to warn you in the first place. The temptation that, that you could have seen coming or you could have said something in your heart like, I know that this is going to make me angry. I know what this tends to do to me. I know, I know how this tends to make me feel. And if we bypass all those warning signs, all those temptations, we'll likely fall right into losing our temper, losing our anger. Gossip and social media, I think, is another big one. We all, we, people tend to have good intentions when they talk about people. Did you hear about this person? Oh, yeah, I heard about that. And many times it could start off with good intentions. But without even realizing it, we're gossiping. Without even realizing it, we're hurting someone else when they're not in the room. Without even realizing we're breaking fellowship with someone because of things that we've said that we wouldn't say in front of them. Or, or something we said that's not loving or it's not edifying. If we don't know what gossip is from Scripture, then how can you be aware of the temptation to gossip? You know, at some extent, you know, the Word of God tells us in Romans, Romans 2 that to some extent, people who don't have the law of God, they know the law of God to some extent that it's written on our hearts. We see this just in our culture. You know, we, we have a general understanding that murder is wrong. We have a general understanding that it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to cheat. Uh, we have a general understanding of these things. As a culture, we might be able to agree on those things. That's what, that's what it means to have the law of God written in our hearts, is that when we do something wrong, we generally know it. Even if for, for someone to not be a Christian, if they're to see a Christian murder someone, well, that non-Christian knows that they did something wrong because they have the law of God written on their heart. But to a further extent, we know that God has revealed to us the specifics of his law and how to obey him and how to, uh, how to live according to his will. As Joshua 1.8, once again, I'm so glad that Andy read that passage this morning because it immediately applies to our text today. If we're going to recognize temptation, temptation and avoid sinning, you can't do that without meditating on the law of God day and night. And so Jesus was a great example of this. In his Sermon on the Mount, he would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and what he was doing, he was not changing the law of God, but he was further, uh, further defining what the law of God was, the heart of the law, because there were a lot of Jews and a lot of Pharisees who thought that they knew the letter of the law so well that no one else could teach them anything new. And the problem was that they knew the letter of the law, but they did not know the heart of the law. That's why Jesus called them hypocrites. That's why when Jesus, uh, he considered them righteous, Jesus wasn't calling them good. He wasn't calling them like, oh, you don't need, don't worry, you guys don't need me. When he called the Pharisees righteous, he was, considering, he was uh, 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 calling them out as being self-righteous. They're, they were righteous in their own eyes. That's why in, in later down in Luke, uh, he says, I came not for the righteous, but for the sinners to repent. Because Jesus knew that the Pharisees had such a hard heart that they consider themselves self-righteous, they would never come to Jesus for repentance. They would never come to Jesus for forgiveness or, or they would never want to hear Jesus' teachings uh, to teach them anything new because they thought that they had it all. So, as Christians, if we're going to avoid temptation, if we're going to recognize temptation and avoid sin, we have to know the Word of God because God lays out specifically what sin is. What is idolatry? What is worshiping other gods? What does it mean to remember the Sabbath? What does it mean to honor your father and mother and all the rest? God lays it out specifically throughout his word. 
And so I think there are many professing Christians also who are perpetually living in sin simply because they're avoiding the scriptures that would convict them. They would call themselves Christians, but they know that there are areas in the Bible that they do not want people to tell them about. So they don't read those parts. There's plenty of people who say, well, I'm a Christian, I just don't believe in going to church. I don't want to be a part of church. Uh, it's a personal relationship between me and God. I don't need church. I don't need any of this stuff. Uh, I read my Bible on my own. I have my own personal prayer time. I watch my favorite preachers on YouTube and on TV. And they use all these other things to try to replace church. But they're not going to want to hear scriptures that talk about spiritual gifts. And how the one purpose of spiritual gifts is to serve one another in the body of Christ. He's not, that those people are not going to hear the scriptures that speak on accountability to one another. In James 5.16 or Matthew 18, we talk about church discipline. They're not going to hear those things. They're not going to hear scriptures on the importance of community and gathering together as believers in Hebrews 10.24. In the, in the context of Hebrews, they're going, undergoing uh, intense persecution, and there are a lot of people who didn't want to meet together out of fear of getting caught, out of fear of being called a Christian and being arrested or being persecuted for that. So a lot of people were not meeting with one another. See, someone who calls himself a Christian and will go to the grave thinking, I don't need church, they're going to avoid those scriptures. For people who are in unhealthy marriages, for any selfish husband or selfish wife, they're not going to want to read Ephesians 5 on how a husband is a love as Christ, as, as Christ loved the church. They're not going to want to read the, the scriptures in, in terms of how a wife is to... Uh, uh, and give herself to her husband, and how their bodies belong to one another in 1 Corinthians 6, and they should not be withholding one another from themselves, from each other. There's people in marriages that they want their marriage fixed, but they want it fixed their way. And there's many professing Christians who will avoid scriptures that would convict them of what they're doing wrong. People who are in sexual relationships outside of marriage, they're not going to hear that they're committing adultery. Because in their eyes, well, we love each other, uh, we're doing what's best for us, and, and we're still Christians because we're, we're, we're with each other, and we love each other, and we know what the Bible says about love one another. And they'll make all these justifications in their mind why what they're doing is okay. But they're going to want to avoid all the scriptures that talk about adultery. So I think this is something as all Christians, we need to be very careful of as we meditate on the Word of God and we reflect on our own lives uh, I forget, in, uh, in your notes pages, in, uh, your notes pages look a little different this morning because I'm hoping that there are questions in here that will be beneficial and edifying to you as you meditate on the Word of God or as you reflect upon the story of Judah and Tamar. But I hope that these are questions that, that will, uh, will spur you on into uh, going deeper in your understanding of God's grace for you and understanding what sin and temptation is. Now, on the other side, there's lines for all you note-takers. You can still take notes. But that's one of the things that we can learn from Judah in this story is the importance of recognizing temptation so that we can avoid falling into sin. The next thing is, is we see that in Judah's life as well as ours, in our sinfulness, we could easily judge or condemn others for their sins while hiding our own sins. When we see other people sin, and everyone knows about it, but no one knows about our sin, it's so easy to condemn them and tell everyone what, they, what should happen to them. 
hoping that no one will find out about our sin. In uh, James 4, 11 to 12, it says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, you could replace uh, judge with the word condemn. That's really what he's speaking about. Speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And there's only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? If you read uh, James chapter 4, that whole context is about people who are trying to put themselves in the place of God. Uh, when people make plans in the future, uh, James tells us, well, you should not do that. Just say, if the Lord wills, it'll happen. You know, in, in that whole context of that, of that chapter, James is speaking of people who are constantly trying to put, them in God's, put themselves in God's place. And so in, in this uh, specific verse is those who are trying to condemn one another, just as Judah is trying to do to Tamar, when he himself is guilty of sexual sin. And so we know this, I mean, just by driving, we see someone cutting off someone else ahead of us, and we, 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 we shake our heads at them. We say, that is, man, what a jerk to do that to someone, right? Later on down the road, we realize, oh, I'm in the wrong lane, and we got to get over to the next lane, right? And if probably someone a few cars behind us is thinking the same thing, and the cycle continues, right? And we're, everyone's thinking the other person's a jerk, and we're the good drivers. But we do that in so, much, in so many other areas in our life. That when we're not aware of our own sinfulness, we tend to be way more judgy, way more condemning of others, way less gracious and forgiving towards others. And we are so much more gracious towards ourselves because, you know, our sin's not as bad as their sin, as we would tell ourselves. So we have to be aware of these things. When we, when we are trying to recognize temptation and trying to avoid falling into sin, we have to be humble, humble before God, recognizing that we sin way more than we ever thought we did. And when we recognize those things, we, we rejoice in scriptures that, that talk about how he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, like in 1 John. And so as we come to a better understanding of our sinfulness, then our appreciation for what God has done in our life increases. And, and as another result, our obedience should also be increasing all the more because we are so much more appreciative of what God has done for us. We were no longer content. We should never be content with where we are in a relationship with God because we know that there is such a big gap between us and God without Christ that we can never get there. Next, one of the other things we learn is the consequences of our sin can have lasting effects. It could have lasting effects. I'm sure there are plenty of people in this room who could relate to the lasting effects of mistakes we've made in the past. Imagine Judah's situation. You, you, we, we have that saying of, you're going to have to live with the consequences of that, right? Judah literally had to live with the consequences. I'm not talking about the children. Children are never consequences. All right? Regardless of any situation they're born into, regardless of whatever situation a woman conceives, children, human beings made bearing the image of God, are never consequences. We have to get that straight. Now, here are the consequences. Judah, can you imagine Judah's life raising these two boys with his daughter-in-law that he had children with, that he regrets so much that he never had sex with her again? It probably felt good to him when he thought she was a prostitute. 
Imagine how disgusted he felt now, knowing who she was and how she was related to him. And he was so disgusted that even though he was faithful in taking care of her as his wife, he still never had sex with her again. That's repentance. That's the picture of repentance. That we feel so bad about our sin in the past that our desire is to never do it again. That should be our attitude towards all sin. I wish I could say that uh, uh, I could stop lying for the rest of my life. I wish I could be so sorry for my lying that I'll, I'll know for sure I'll never lie again. Unfortunately, I'm not immune to sin and temptation myself. But that's how Judah felt. He regretted this so much that he never did it again. But he raised two boys that would have looked like him. He, ra- he was with a wife that he, could not, he would not have sex with. And these would have been constant reminders of the mistake that he made on that road to Timnah. Those were the consequences. The children were not consequences. As we see, God redeems all life. God redeems any situation however he pleases. That Perez went on to be in the lineage of King David. Human life is never a consequence. All human life is to be celebrated. All human life is to be met with joy in celebration in the body of Christ and, and all is surrounding it, the, all our loved ones, uh, any human life, regardless of how they're conceived or regardless of the situation they're born in, it is a celebration. Here's the difference. Because I think many times when, when parents are teaching their children about what sin is and what consequences are, we tend to teach in this way that says the consequences is what makes it sinful. Here's an example. A lot of times I'll hear parents teaching their kids, well, don't have sex outside of marriage. It's wrong because it'll cause your marriage to be more difficult. Or don't have sex outside before marriage because you might get pregnant. Or because uh, you might not be with that person the rest of your life. And we tend to, when it comes to teaching our kids about sin and consequences, we tend to, uh, many people tend to teach that the consequences is the reason why it's sinful. That's not the reason why it's sinful. What makes something sinful is just disobeying the word of the Lord. It, what makes it sinful is that God said, do not commit adultery. That's what makes it sinful. Consequences are, are not what makes it sinful, but oftentimes they are just a result of our sin. Do you guys see the difference? So I think as parents, we have to be very careful when we're teaching our children about what sin is, what consequences are, that we're not teaching simple morality. We're not teaching, well, do this because it will make your be- life better in the future. It will make your life easier in the future. That's a, that's a uh, Christian morality. That's not teaching the gospel. Because many kids will grow up saying, well, let's go on with this uh, adultery circumstance, uh, situation. Is uh, Many kids will say, well, these people had sex before marriage, and they turned out fine. They got pregnant before marriage, and they turned out fine. Mom and Dad, you got pregnant before. You had me before you got married. I, we turned out fine, right? And they'll use that same logic against the parents. Because in their minds, they turned out fine. So this is a danger in teaching that consequences is what makes a sin sinful. We have to know the word of God. Because there's a word of God that makes sin sinful. When God says you do something, you don't do it. That's sinful. If God says don't do something, and you do it. That's sinful. And so that's what makes sin sinful. is disobedience to the word of God. The consequences are just results of our sin many times. 
So in, uh, the hope for us as Christians as we make these mistakes, and if you are still uh, suffering some of the lasting effects of a mistake or mistakes that you've made in the past, here's a hope for all of us. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, that's the important thing, that we're reconciled. What does that mean? It means that we're, there was once no, there was, uh, where there was no peace, there is now peace. That before you knew Christ, there was no peace between you and God. And now that you know Christ, now there's peace between you and God. You have no fear in death because God's judgment is not going to come against you because of your faith in Christ and what he did for you and your sins on the cross. So he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, it's our ministry now to preach a message of reconciliation to all those who still need it. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Regardless of how much you're still suffering of past mistakes, your trespasses will not be counted against you. That's where our faith is in Christ. That's where our faith is in the word of God. That regardless of the lasting effects that our our mistakes and our sin has in the past, our, our faith isn't placed in hoping that God will somehow wipe all those things away here in this life on earth. The, the, our faith and our hope is placed in that when we appear before God and we're judged on all those things, that we'll be found innocent because of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. He has committed to us a word of reconciliation. That's how it ends. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, God's promise is not that we'll be free from all the consequences here on earth. His promise is that we'll be free from the consequences of sin in eternity. That's where the promise, that's where our faith lies. That it's very possible for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul. There's plenty of people who are going to go to hell while living a completely content and rich and happy life here on earth. And they will see nothing wrong with their life. But they will forfeit their soul and that they never realized the, the sins that they had committed their whole life in rejecting God and rejecting his word. There will be plenty of happy people here on earth who will reject God and they will suffer the eternal consequences of their sin. That's why it's important for us. to. to we were given this ministry of reconciliation. We want others to be reconciled with God. The last thing. We done. Something else we could learn. Well, we have to go through examples of consequences. You know, I made such a big stink about consequences are not what makes sin sinful. Here's some examples. This is all just related to Judah's situation. Say, for example, for Judah and Tamar's situation, it would have been difficult uh, raising his children. But imagine people who raise their children alone. Uh, if people get married, uh, get pregnant unexpectedly outside of marriage, and, and they might wonder uh, what's going to happen uh, with their relationship, uh, how many couples get married because they feel it's just the right thing to do, and then their marriage doesn't last uh, because they, didn't, they never had a healthy, uh, they never had a healthy understanding of marriage. If you don't have a healthy understanding of marriage, then you'll never have a healthy understanding of sex, because if you don't have a healthy understanding of marriage, then you will, you're doomed to misuse sex. 
But these are the consequences that come of these kinds of situations. It's not the children who are consequences. It's the things that happen around it. Even considering abortion or the emotional pain for those who have had an abortion. You know, it wasn't the child that was a consequence. It's the emotional pain that goes along with that. It's the brokenness that people feel. It's the, it's the recovery, the emotional recovery that people need to go through after going through a procedure like that. I got to think that maybe Judah, if, that, if this was going to happen today, maybe they would have considered abortion. Happened because he thought it was another woman. He didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. It was incest. Uh, you know, uh, he probably could have just argued that, well, we don't want this kid anymore because it was through incest. Uh, there could, probably could have been a lot of ways. And now in today's culture, that if Judah and Tamar happened today, they probably they could be pushing for, uh, for abortion. The relational complications that often result of unplanned pregnancies, see, it's those things that are the consequences. It's never the children. I can't stress that enough. We have to make the difference, the, the discern the difference between what are the consequences. It's, it's the emotional things. It's the relational things that happen. So, uh, last thing. When people say, you know, many people in our, in our moralistic culture today, they could say, well, I have no regrets over what happened in the past because all those things led up to how I am today. I wouldn't change a single thing about my life because that's how, that's how I got to where I am today. That's not the right attitude for a Christian to have because there's no repentance in that. There's no remorse in that. When we say to have, that we have no regrets, if you enjoy where your life is now, praise God. But it doesn't mean that we should not have any regrets over our past because it was God who redeemed you from that situation to bring you to where you are today. So instead of someone saying, and this is very tempting for Christians to say, that I have no regrets because this is where God has me now and, and I wouldn't want it any other way. Well, instead of saying I have no regrets or I wouldn't change a single thing, instead we should be saying, I thank God because he redeemed my life from this situation. We keep the focus on what God has done. We keep the focus on God's sovereignty in our life and, and not on anything else. It's important that Christians have regret and remorse over their past, because that's what brings us to Christ in the first place. So instead of saying, I have no regrets, instead, I would suggest say, I thank God that he redeemed me from the situation. Last thing we could lean, uh, learn from the story is the fact that repentance is preceded by remorse. Judah displays a proper attitude towards getting caught. And she said, immediately says, she is more righteous than I. In, in as much that I didn't even give her my son to be her new husband. He recognized the fact that he lied. He was caught in his lie, that he felt bad that he lied to her but in the first place. And, and Judah showed this understanding that Tamar was put in this situation where she was just trying to have children, and she wanted a provider. And Judah's almost empathizing with her, or sympathizing with her, saying, I understand why she did this. I understand why Tamar felt, felt like she had to go to great lengths uh, to put me in the situation because I lied to her. And so he is sympathizing for her. And he's confessing his sin. And as a result, he never had relations with her again. Even though he was still her provider, he was still her husband, he took care of her, he raised his children, he raised his sons with her, he never had sex with her again. Because the sin in his eyes was so great to him, he would never want to do that again. 
So we see this cycle. Temptation often leads to sin, but as Christians, that sin better be leading to remorse and humiliation. Not humiliation like public humiliation. Uh, well, it is public humiliation if you, if you reject private uh, confrontation, uh, as it's instructed in Matthew 18. But it's not the sense of being humiliated like you should be uh, publicized right away. It's the idea of this internal humiliation, that when you realize that you sinned, you're humiliated for the sake of Christ, that you grieve the Holy Spirit. And that leads to repentance, this idea, this, this desire that I never want to do that to you, Lord, again. And so we set up things in our lives, people in our lives to help keep us accountable. Uh, we have safeguards in place in our lives to show that we have a desire to never sin that way again. And we, we study the word of God to have a deeper understanding of our sin and deeper understanding of, uh, of God's holiness and to help us motiv- be motivated to not sin against God. So here's the gospel. You know, in every passage of the Bible, we can always bring it back to the gospel. Number one is this. If you think that you're saved because you've never sinned so badly as Judah has, then you are still in need of Christ today. If you think that you're saved because you've never done those really bad things, then you're in need of a Savior. That means that you don't quite have this understanding of what Christ has done for you, that all the wages of sin is death. That for those who keep the law and to stumble at one point makes you a transgressor of the law. And if you feel that you've sinned so badly that you can't imagine God's forgiveness in your life, then you need to place your faith in the words of Scripture where it says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or in Hebrews 10, where it talks about Jesus being the one sacrifice for sins for all time. That bad, really bad mistake that you made in the past that you're still suffering uh, lasting effects from, God knew that you made that mistake. Before the foundations of the world, God knew that you were going to sin in that way. And yet the offer of salvation is still for you. If you recognize that you're sinful, if you want God's forgiveness in your life, knowing that he's going to save you from eternal punishment from your sin and he will give you eternal life, then believe in Christ. Place your faith in Christ for forgiveness. But above all, when, you're, when you experience his forgiveness, you live your life for him. All right, let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for convicting us continually of our sins so that we may never be content with where we are spiritually, that we will never think that we're good enough in our faith in Christ, or I know enough scripture to not do the really bad things. Help us to not avoid the scriptures that will convict us of our sinfulness. And in the process of being convicted, we thank you that we could bask in the glory and in the promises of Scripture of forgiveness for those sins, of the fact that you are faithful to us to cleanse us in, 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 from all unrighteousness and to offer us, to give us eternal life when we are so undeserving of it. I pray that as a church in Brentwood Bible that we are a group of people who live in this way, that those who are watching our lives on the outside, those who watch our ministries, our neighbors who will watch our lives around our homes and in the walls of our home, or that they will be witnessing the gospel 
as we live our lives, as we live our lives daily for you, and that they might come to, sa- to saving faith as well and be able to give you glory for all things. And so, uh, Father, we thank you for all things that you've given us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.